The New Testament reading for today is Luke 22 through 35. Luke 2, 22 through 35. And the sermon text for today is Exodus 13, 1 through 16. So go first to Luke 2, 22. And then we will go to Exodus 13. In Luke's Gospel in chapter 2, we are learning about the birth of Christ. And in verse 22, we read, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Mary and Joseph brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let us go now to Exodus 13 and read. Verses 1 through 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord." Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb, 
All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time... And, in when ta- and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrificed to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I think the best way for us to consider our text for today is by asking three questions. One, what does the text say? Two, what did it mean for Old Covenant Israel? And three, What does it mean for us today? This is the approach we will take. The first question is is rather easy to answer. What does the text say? Here in Exodus 13, we first of all find instructions for the consecration of the firstborns of Israel, of man and beast. And secondly, we encounter even more instructions regarding the observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And in fact, our text begins and ends with instructions regarding the consecration of the firstborns. And in the middle, we find these instructions regarding the feast. As you can see, these things are all intertwined. In this passage and in the previous one, many words are devoted to instructions regarding the observance of the Passover festival, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the consecration or the setting apart of the firstborns of Israel, the males, unto the Lord. And what do all of these rituals share in common? The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the consecration of the firstborn males. What do they all share in common? They all memorialize in some aspect the historical event wherein the Lord rescued Israel from bondage in Egypt through the outpouring of the tenth plague as He shielded His people from harm. Can you see that? Each one of these these, uh, rituals now, they memorialize that great historical event through which the Lord redeemed Israel. We've already learned about the Passover festival. It was to be observed on the 14th day of the first month of the year according to the Hebrew calendar, the month of Abib. On the 10th day of the month, the Israelites were to select a lamb or goat without blemish and they were to set it aside, one per household or one per multiple households if the households were small. And in the evening on the 14th day, the lamb or goat was to be killed. Some of its blood was to be spread on the doorposts and header of the home, the door of the home, and then roasted simply over fire. The whole animal was to be consumed, and it was to be eaten with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. This this was a kind of reenactment of what happened on the night that the 10th plague was poured out on the Egyptians and the Hebrews were spared. Uh, The Lord passed over and shielded all of the homes that had the blood of the Lamb applied to the doorposts. And this yearly Passover festival was to function as a yearly reminder of that event. It was to memorialize this historical event and this act of redemption that the Lord had accomplished. We have also learned about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, This feast was also to be observed yearly by Israel. It began on the 14th day of the month of the year, of the first month of the year. 
But this festival would last for seven days through to the end of day 21. On the first day, the Israelites were to remove all leaven from their homes. A leaven is a substance, typically yeast, that is used to make bread rise. Uh, just a little bit of it affects the whole batch of dough. And here the Israelites were told none of it was to be found in their homes. They were to eat unleavened bread for these seven days. From the 14th day of the month through the 21st day of the month, the Israelites were to eat only unleavened flat bread. And this was to remind them of how they prepared their bread with haste on the day before the 10th plague was poured out, and how they walked out of Egypt with their dough unleavened, and they relied upon that bread to sustain them as they journeyed out of Egypt and into the wilderness. On days 1 and 7 of this yearly festival... Uh, the Israelites were to hold a holy assembly. In other words, the people were to come together uh, to worship. They were to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, again, we have a kind of reenactment of the original event. Uh, the Israelites were to do this every single year once they entered into the land of promise. And they were to do this together as a people. They were to observe this festival at a fixed time, and they were to assemble together on the first and seventh days. So the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread are tightly linked together. In fact, I think they can be considered two aspects of the same festival. Both were memorials of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. And we considered instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread in 2, 14 through 12, 14 through 20. And we find even more here in verses 3 through 10 of chapter 13. Now, now, something new is also introduced to us in this passage. Before and after the instructions regarding the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we find laws concerning the consecration or setting apart of the firstborn males of Israel, both of man and of beast. In 13.1 we read, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. And in verse 11, we find Moses instructing Israel concerning this consecration, saying, When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall, you shall redeem. So what is this about? What is this about? Here we find yet another positive law given to Old Covenant Israel. All firstborn male animals were to be sacrificed to the Lord. Unclean animals, such as donkeys, were to be redeemed. This means that a substitute was to be provided, a life for a life. A lamb could uh, be uh, the substitute. Uh, the lamb was considered a clean animal, and therefore it was suitable for sacrifice. And the lamb was to be offered up in the place of the unclean animal. Uh, notice that I have just introduced you a new category that we have not encountered in Genesis or Exodus up to this point, and that is the category of clean and unclean. 
Let me tell you what that means. In brief, in the law of Moses, many distinctions will be made from, from this point onward concerning things clean and unclean, and distinctions will be made between things common and things holy. I've already warned you that we are entering into that portion of Scripture that describes that time where many positive laws were imposed upon the people of God for a particular time and a particular place and for a particular pur- purpose. And here is yet another example. In Old Covenant Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, a distinction was made between things clean and unclean, things common and things holy. And here in this passage we learn that all of the firstborn male animals were to be consecrated to the Lord, The clean animals were to be sacrificed to God in worship, but the unclean were to be redeemed. A substitute was to be provided for them. A price was to be paid. And the same was true for the firstborn sons of Israel. All of Israel's firstborn sons were to be consecrated unto the Lord. They they, they belonged to the Lord in in a special way in Old Covenant Israel. And because they were human beings made in the image of God and not animals, clean or unclean, Every firstborn son of Israel was to be redeemed. A substitute was to be offered up in their place. This passage seems to suggest that a lamb could be offered up as a substitute for the firstborn sons of Israel. And perhaps that was true for a time, or perhaps it remained true. But in Numbers 18, 14 and following, detailed instructions are given to the priests of Israel concerning the consecration of the firstborns. And the price of redemption. There we read, Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Here is um, the Lord speaking to the priests. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem. And the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And the redemption price... At a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty garahs. But the firstborn of a cow, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar, and shall burn their fat as a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That is Numbers 18, 14-17. So, so here we see, at this point in the history of of Israel and in the history of redemption, the price of redemption for the firstborn of man and of all unclean animals was set at five shekels in silver. And we should remember that Jesus Christ was consecrated as a newborn, he being the firstborn of Mary. In Luke 22, 22 and following, we read, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Uh, Joseph and Mary were poor, and so they offered up a pair of turtle doves instead, which was a provision made for the poor in the law of Moses found in Leviticus 12.8. They couldn't afford the normal um, price, and so they were permitted to offer up a pair of turtle doves instead. Again, a provision made in Leviticus 12.8. So, so now we have simply considered what the text says in Exodus 13. In our passage for today, we find 
even more positive laws pertaining to the observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and laws pertaining to the consecration of the firstborn males of Israel and of man and beast. These laws were given uniquely to Old Covenant Israel. This people was to obey these laws in a particular time, in a particular place, and for a particular purpose. And now we must ask, what did this mean for Israel? In other words, what did these laws communicate to Israel? What was their meaning or message? Certainly they had a significance. Certainly they had a significance. These positive laws were not imposed upon Israel arbitrarily by God. It's not as if God is in heaven saying, I think you guys are a little bit too, uh, you know, lackadaisical, you have too much time on your hands, so I'm just going to give you some busy work to do, you know. I'm just going to give you some stuff to do. No, not at all. These were not arbitrary laws imposed upon Israel by God. No, these laws were added to them for a purpose. They signified things, uh, just as positive laws always do. Remember, brothers and sisters, that positive laws are not inherently moral. I say remember because this was addressed in a previous sermon. Uh, They are added in connection with the making of covenants to signify certain things. For example, do not eat from this tree here. Circumcise your male children. Baptize those who believe. And partake of this in remembrance of me. Here I am alluding to the Lord's Supper, of course. These are all positive laws that are added in connection with the making of covenant. They are not binding on all. They were added to Old Covenant Israel in the days of Moses for a time and purpose. Here I'm referring to the laws that we are now considering. And I'm asking, what did they communicate? What did they signify? I think the best way to answer this question is to consider what these rituals communicated to Israel concerning the past, present, and future. What did these laws communicate to Israel concerning the past, present, and future? And to be clear, I am speaking of their past, present, and future. So we must put ourselves in the place of Israel, right after the Exodus, and leading up until the resurrection and ascension of Christ. What did these laws communicate for Israel in that time, concerning the past, present, and future? Now concerning the past, these festivals and rituals reminded Israel of their redemption from Egypt. The yearly Passover feast was a kind of reenactment of the night when the tenth plague was poured out, the firstborns of Egypt being put to death, while the firstborns of the Hebrews and all others who took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, they were shielded from the judgment of God. The Feast of Unleavened Bread functioned as a kind of extension of the Passover, reminding Israel of their hasty exodus from Egypt the following day. And the consecration of the firstborn males of Israel reminded them of how God spared their firstborns while pouring out His judgment upon children of Egypt, the firstborns of Egypt. Each of these three was in its own unique way a memorial of the Exodus event in all of its complexity. They were to remind Israel of the past. The Passover has already been called a memorial. And listen to what our text says in verse 8 concerning the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You shall tell your son on that day It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord brought you out 
of Egypt. Something similar is said in verse 13 concerning the consecration of the firstborn males. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, son or daughter... I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand, here it is again, or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. In other words, this ritual, like the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was to function as a perpetual reminder to Israel of what God did for them in the past. Uh, That is what is meant by it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. Um, uh, Can you imagine having uh, something dangling in between your eyes? Uh, It it would come to your attention often and it would remind you of whatever those things signified. Same thing with a mark on your hand. Sometimes, you know, we don't do this now that we have technology, right? But I think there was a time where we'd take out a pen and we'd write something on our hand in order to remind us of something that needed to be done. You remember those days, <laughs> right? Um, ah, yes, I need to get this at the grocery store today. Uh, this language that we find here in Exodus 13, it, 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 it's saying that these festivals, these, these um, rituals that I'm here giving to you are going to function as a perpetual reminder to you of what I have done for you in the past. The yearly observance of the Passover, the yearly observance of the Feast of Unleavened Bread will do it, but also every time uh, a firstborn comes into Israel of man or of beast, it's to be consecrated unto the Lord, set apart unto Him, either by being offered up as a sacrifice or by being redeemed. It's going to be a perpetual reminder of what I've done for you to redeem you from Egyptian bondage when I poured out that tenth and final plague. It's important to know and to remember history brothers and sisters. It is important to know and to remember history. We can gain a lot of wisdom from history, but this event was to be remembered by Israel because this event, their redemption from Egypt, defined them as a people and as a nation. It was more than just a random historical event. It was more than just an event of great significance. This event... Israel's redemption from Egypt, defined them as a people and a nation. And so they were to observe these festivals and these laws to commemorate what God had done for them in the past. And not only were they to do these things in front of their children, and not only were they to teach their children to obey these laws and to observe these rituals themselves, they were also to explain the significance of these rituals to their children. Did you see that in the text? The purpose was to prompt the children, that is to say the next generation and the next generation of that to, to ask, what does this mean? Why do we observe this holy day? Why do we observe this ritual? What is this about? And this would give the parents an opportunity to say to the children, this is what it is about. This is what God did for us in the past, and we cannot forget it, for this is what our identity is. God has redeemed us. He has made us a holy people for, for this purpose. Uh, rituals can become dead rituals. When their significance is forgotten. Israel was to keep the festival. 
and consecrate their firstborn males, to remember what the Lord did for them, to redeem them from Egypt. They were to teach the next generation about what God had done so that they would know and would believe. Rituals can become dead rituals when their significance is forgotten, you see. And so the people of Israel were instructed not only to keep these laws, but to, to explain to one generation after another what these things mean. These positive laws were added and imposed upon Israel to cause them to remember the Exodus. And I think it is important for us to remember that the Exodus story began not in the days of Moses, but long before that in the days of Abraham. Indeed, the Exodus story begins not with Exodus chapter 1, but in Genesis chapter 1. I wonder if you're following me here. Or to put it another way, these festivals and rituals that were given to Israel in the days of Moses were meant to remind Israel not only of the Exodus event itself, but of the backstory too. But of the backstory too. The backstory is very important, brothers and sisters. The Exodus event, which we are now considering, makes sense only against the backdrop of the story of Genesis. That is, the story of creation of man's fall into sin and the promise of redemption for the world through the offspring of Abraham. And here I am saying that these festivals and rituals imposed upon Israel were intended to perpetually remind them of all of that. The Exodus event itself, yes, of course, but everything that led up to it, they were, the Hebrews were given an opportunity to teach all of this to their children. Every time they observed these rituals so that their children would know their history. And even more importantly, believe in the promises of God that were entrusted to them through their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Promises pertaining to the salvation of the world through faith in the Hebrew Messiah. These laws were meant to be evangelistic in a way. That's what I'm saying. They were meant to give Israel an opportunity to preach the gospel to their children, to tell the story of Egypt, the Egyptian redemption, but, but to tell the backstory too and to remind one generation after the next of the promises of God that had been entrusted to them. Not only did these positive laws have significance concerning Israel's past, they also had significance for their present. There's a lot that could be said about this. I'll say just enough to get us thinking in the right direction. But in brief, these positive laws pertaining to the observance of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the consecration of the firstborn males were meant not only to remind Israel of the past, but to communicate to them in the present that they were a holy people, set apart in the world as the Lord's special possession. To use Paul's language, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Obviously, Paul is writing after the Christ has come. But he is, he is describing the, the uniqueness of old covenant Israel. He's saying they were a unique people that the Lord set apart for a particular time and for a particular purpose. Wonderful promises were entrusted to them. Uh, they, were, they were a holy people living in the world. For a time, and these positive laws that were added and imposed upon the Hebrews under the Old Covenant were intended to remind Israel of its privileged place in the world. Everything in the world belongs to God, 
But they were His in a special way, for the Lord chose them and set them apart. He redeemed them from bondage. He made them into a holy nation, a nation to be governed by His holy law, a nation that would have the glory of God dwell in the midst of her, a nation devoted to worship, a a nation instructed with the Word of God and the promises of God concerning the Savior of, of the world. This privileged position was not to create pride in Israel, but humility, for it was only by God's grace. The stories that we find in Genesis regarding the call of Abraham and the lives of the patriarchs communicated this. It was by God's grace that Abraham was set apart with his offspring. Abraham did not deserve it. And the Exodus story communicates the same. The Hebrews' redemption from Egypt was by God's grace. It was not Moses who delivered them. Nor did the Hebrews deliver themselves. They were powerless to do so. The Lord delivered the Hebrews according to His might. As the people of Israel observed the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and as they consecrated the firstborn males, they should have been reminded of all of that history. And this should have cultivated humility within their hearts in the present, along with a sense of gratitude towards God and responsibility as it pertains to the nations. Here are these, these festivals, these laws, marked them off as a holy people, and the people should have been reminded every time they obeyed one of these rituals of who they were, of their unique and privileged place in the world, and what God was doing through them. Again, under the Old Covenant, the Hebrew people were graciously set apart as a holy nation unto the Lord and for a purpose. And these positive laws that were added and imposed upon them in the days of of Moses were to remind them of their identity communicated something to them regarding their special place in the world. That is one of their functions. These rituals, they communicated something about the past and the present to the people of Israel, but they also communicated something concerning the future to them. This is a little difficult to see if we have our noses buried in this text, leading us to lose sight of what came before And what comes after. But if we are careful to read this portion of Scripture, Exodus 13, in the light of all the rest, we are able to see how these positive laws not only reminded Israel of the past and who they were in the present, they also anticipate the work that God would do in the future through the promised Messiah. We must admit that the message concerning the work that the Messiah who was to come would do was a bit mysterious in the Old Covenant era. That's how Paul describes it in his writings. He talks about it as a mystery, something revealed, but dimly revealed. No one knew exactly who the Messiah would be or how He would accomplish our salvation, but enough light was given so that the faithful in Israel could believe. By the way, In that Luke passage that we just read, uh, the priest there at the temple who blessed Jesus, did you notice something about him? He had marvelous insight into this mystery. He he knew what uh, the Old Testament scriptures were really all about. They were pointing to uh, the Christ and the work that He would accomplish. And the Lord gave him special insight by the Holy Spirit to know that this was the one This Jesus, uh, 
the, the son of Mary would be the one who would accomplish redemption. But, but he knew the Scriptures. He understood the Scriptures. He saw this mystery and he, and he believed and he blessed Jesus. What exactly he would be or who he would be was mysterious. But enough light was given so that the faithful in Israel could believe. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ came to the Old Covenant saints in different ways. This light of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel came to them in different ways through, through the promises of God. It came to them through prophecy. It also came to them through types. Now the promises and prophecies are rather easy for us to identify and understand, aren't they? You can see those. They're, they're easy for us to identify. Where are the promises of God found? Where are the prophecies found? Well, for example, God spoke to Abraham and promised to bless the nations through one of his offspring. So there it is, just stated directly. And God spoke, for example, through Jeremiah the prophet, quite clearly concerning the coming new covenant. Those who lived under the old covenant were always looking forward to something. They were awaiting the day when the Messiah would come to do His work and to establish His eternal kingdom, etc. The promises entrusted to Abraham and the prophecies which followed made it clear that the Lord still had work to do in regards to the accomplishment of our redemption. And even Moses himself spoke to Israel saying, The Lord your God will, notice how he's speaking of the future here, The Lord your God will rise up, raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him uh, you shall listen. That is Deuteronomy 18.15. Here I am saying that even Moses himself, this great leader, the one through whom the Lord accomplished this great act of redemption, is saying to Israel, even in his lifetime, there's someone greater coming. The Lord is going to rise up someone greater than me, a prophet like me, but to him you shall listen. So everything about Old Covenant Israel was forward-looking. They were being reminded of their past. They were being reminded of their peculiar place in the present. But they were being reminded of the future too. The promises concerning the coming Messiah. The promises and prophecies of the Old Covenant make this clear. But here I am saying that the historical event of the Exodus, along with the rituals that were given to Israel to commemorate that event... These had a prophetic and forward-looking quality to them as well. We call them types or shadows because they said something about the future, not through words, but through events, through images, through figures. Isn't that interesting? These, these laws that were given to Israel, these festivals, they, they said something to Israel prophetically about the future, but not through not through words. This was not a, thus says the Lord situation, a prophet standing up and uttering words. It was not that. But they said something to Israel about the future through events, images, through figures. They are types, they are shadows, they are pictures of things yet to come. Now, perhaps the most obvious example of this is the blood of the Passover lamb. Now, the Lord could have distinguished between the Hebrews and the Egyptians in any way that He wished. Think about it. In the outpouring of the tenth plague, the Lord's will was to strike the Egyptians, but to spare the Hebrews. And He could have distinguished between the Egyptians and the Hebrews in any way that He wished. In fact, the Lord knows who are His, and so no sign was needed. <laughs> he could have simply done it. He could have simply distinguished between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, as He had done in previous plagues. But what did the Lord do with the outpouring of the tenth plague, he determined to use a sign uh, 
to mark the Hebrews and all who wish to identify with them by faith off from the Egyptians. He determined to use a sign, a symbol. And, and why a sign? Again, it is to signify something. And why this sign? Why the blood of a lamb or goat on the doorpost? Why this one? Why not some other sign? Maybe a flag on the roof, you see. <laughs> or maybe a, a thread tied to the doorknob or, or whatever. Uh, why this sign, the blood of a lamb or goat, spread on the doorposts? Well, all who believe in Jesus Christ will agree it was to signify what Christ would do to save His people from their sins and from eternal damnation. There was a picture there, a forward-looking picture there provided by the Lord. It was an image which communicated to, to Israel, this is how your eternal salvation will be accomplished through the shedding of blood. The Messiah will shed His blood for you. He'll die in your place. All who have the blood of Christ applied to them and received by faith will be cleansed and thus shielded from the just wrath of God. Of course, we're reading that message back into this symbol, which it is right that we do so, because we need to read the entirety of Scripture. But consider this. We are able to identify this symbolism clearly and interpret it rightly only as we consider the blood of the Passover lamb in the light of the rest of Scripture. If the Passover lamb were the only sign given, then its light would be very, very dim indeed. But I wonder, do you remember how the Lord clothed Adam and Eve after they fell into sin and were shamed of their nakedness? you remember that story? Adam and Eve, they tried to clothe themselves uh, with plants. But what did the Lord do? The Lord Himself clothed them with what? Animal skins. So an animal was killed. Blood was shed. And Adam and Eve, their shame was covered by the skins of, of, of these animals. Um, and do you remember that story where Abraham was called to sacrifice his son, Isaac, to test his faith? you remember that story? Abraham obeyed the Lord, knowing that the Lord would provide a way out. And what did the Lord do? How did He provide a way out? The Lord provided a substitute for Isaac, a ram was caught in the thicket to take Isaac's place. And consider the entire sacrificial system that was added under the Mosaic Covenant. It's after this Exodus event, of course, that this takes place. But consider the entire sacrificial system. What I'm saying is this. We find a theme in the Old Testament Scriptures. The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We see that God is gracious. We learn from this theme that God will provide a substitute. And the New Testament is clear. This was all about Christ, our substitute. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says, as he prepares the way for the Messiah. This is glorious to consider. The message of the gospel was communicated to Israel in the Old Covenant through prophecies. It was communicated to them through promises given to them, but also these wonderful types, these, these pictures, these historical events also said something, not with words, but, but through images to the people of Israel concerning the work that God would do in the future. The Passover feast reminded the Hebrews of the past. It reminded them of their identity in the present. But it was also 
forward looking. It reminded Israel of the promises that were made to Adam and Eve and to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob regarding one of their offspring who would bless the nations by providing redemption from sin, Satan, and the fear of death. The law concerning the consecration of the firstborn sons did something similar, didn't it? It reminded Israel of what their sins deserve. It reminded Israel of the grace that was available to them. They were made righteous through faith in the promised Messiah. And it communicated something to them about how their salvation would be accomplished, namely through substitutionary atonement. There's a theological term for you, but it's an important one, right? Through substitutionary atonement. This this principle of substitution has already been introduced to us. Adam and Eve deserved death, but an animal died instead and they were clothed. Isaac was to be sacrificed, but a substitute was provided so that Isaac might live. And here, the Lord says the firstborn males of the Hebrews, they're they're mine. But a substitute is provided for them. And so every time a price of redemption was paid for the firstborn male of man or beast, this good news was pronounced. Substitutionary atonement works, is what was communicated under the Old Covenant time and time again. So listen carefully, brothers and sisters. The Exodus brought earthly deliverance. The Hebrews were rescued from Egypt. It did nothing in and of itself to accomplish spiritual and eternal deliverance. It was earthly. And the old covenant that was instituted under Moses offered blessings and threatened curses as it pertained to life in the land. That covenant in and of itself did not provide for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal blessing. But the same grace that is available to you and to me was available to them. How so? Those who lived in that Old Covenant era could have their sins forgiven through faith in the Messiah who was presented to them through promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. They had the gospel. That is what I am saying They were saved not through these animal sacrifices. They were saved not through that old Mosaic covenant. They were saved by the sacrifice of Christ and through the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. But that same salvation was available to them through the gospel, which was communicated through promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. So, I've asked, what did this mean to Israel? And I've attempted to to tell you what it meant to them In brief, it said something to them concerning their past, their present, and also the future. Now let us ask, what does this text mean to us today? First of all, it should be said that we are not obligated to observe the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or to redeem our firstborn sons with a substitute. These were laws given uniquely to Israel under the old Mosaic Covenant. They were positive laws opposed upon a particular people in a particular place for a particular time. But this does not mean that we should ignore the Scriptures that speak of these things. There's a reason we're studying the book of Exodus. Uh, these, These laws are not to be thrown in the garbage can. They're not to be trampled over and ignored. In fact, much can be gleaned from them. For these laws do reveal Christ to us. They help us to see Him clearly and to understand His person and work. The illustration that comes to my mind is that of a painting. I want you to think of a painting, one that tells a story, preferably. Think of a painting, one that that tells a story. 
imagine a central figure, and then imagine the background. What is the purpose of the background in a painting like this, except to draw attention to and accentuate the central figure, whoever it is? And the background itself can contribute greatly to the overall story that is being told. I wonder if you can imagine this. It's difficult to do on the fly, I guess. But there can be some things in the background that actually contribute to the story itself. They serve to draw attention to that central figure. They tell us about who that central figure is and why he's important. And they make him pop, as it were. This painting tells a story and the background detail is very important. Without it, we wouldn't know much at all about the central figure. But with it, we know who he is. We know the significance of him. We know what he has done. Perhaps I should have used a specific painting in order to illustrate this. But, but I think you get it. And, and what I am saying is that that reminds me of what we are doing when we handle these Old Testament books. We're analyzing background images. We are considering what they communicate in and of themselves. But we're also considering how they relate to Christ, the central figure of the story of redemption. These stories and these rituals make Christ pop. They make Him pop. That's what I'm trying to say. And so we should cherish them. They are the Word of God, and not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so we are to pay attention to these stories, for they do illustrate and illuminate Christ to us. Secondly, everything that was said regarding the rituals of the Old Covenant having significance for the people of God for their past, present, and future may be said of us also as it pertains to the New Covenant ritual, which is the Lord's Supper. Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Redemption or Consecration of Firstborns. It spoke to the people of Israel regarding past, present, and future. And our festival, the Lord's Supper, does the same thing for us. The Lord's Supper is to remind us of the past. Above all, it is to remind us of how Christ accomplished our redemption from sin, the kingdom of Satan, and the power of death through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. But we must not merely remember that event. We must remember its significance in the context of the whole of redemptive history. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember Christ crucified and risen, yes. But it is the whole of Scripture from Genesis 1 onward that helps us to understand who this Christ is and why His death, burial, and resurrection matters for us. And so the festival reminds us of the past. The Lord's Supper is also to remind us of our present identity, of our calling, of our purpose. What is the identity of those who have faith in Christ? What is our identity now, presently? I'll quote Peter. He wrote to New Covenant Christians, saying, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The first little bit of that, when you read it, you think, is Peter speaking to Old Covenant Israel? It sounds like he is. You are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. That sounds like Old Covenant Israel. He's not speaking to Old Covenant Israel. In fact, he clarifies that he's not. He, he says later, once you were not a people, but, but now you are God's chosen people. He's speaking to the New Covenant people of God. They are both Jew and Gentile. 
They are not of one race of men. But he is saying, here is your identity, church. Here is your identity, new covenant people of God. You, you belong to the Lord. You've been set apart by Him as holy in this world. We cannot forget our identity, brothers and sisters, as we live in this world. We've been set apart by the Lord. And what is our calling? What has He called us to do? I'll continue with Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, um, conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Who are we? We are God's chosen people. And what is our calling? We are to live in a holy manner as we sojourn in this world. As we sojourn amongst the Gentiles, that is to say, amongst those who do not believe. What is our mission? We are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And I am saying that the festival that has been given to us under this new covenant era is to remind us of all of that, the past, what Christ did for us, but also of the present, who we are even now. And the Lord's Supper also speaks to us concerning the future. When we partake of the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day Sabbath, we are reminded of the coming consummation of all things, the new heavens and earth, and the marriage supper of the Lamb that we will enjoy there when all things are made new and the glory of God fills all. And so I am saying to you, let us be sure to keep the festival in sincerity and truth, brothers and sisters. We must not allow it to become a dead ritual, but we must approach the table thoughtfully with faith and with thanksgiving in our hearts. We must understand what it signifies concerning the past, present, and future, and we must partake in a worthy manner. Thirdly, I think parents and children may learn something from this passage as we ask, what does this text mean for us today? Parents, I think you can see how this passage would urge you, you and me together, to teach our children the faith. We must teach our children the faith. We bring them to worship with us. They watch us partake of the supper. And here I am saying that we must not neglect to tell them what it means. They need to know what happened. But they also need to be urged to believe these things, to turn from their sins and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You see that emphasis in Exodus 13, don't you? I'm giving you these, these rituals, Israel, so that these rituals might serve as a constant reminder of what I've done, who you are, and what I will do. And it's going to prompt your children to ask questions like, what do these things mean? Tell them what these things mean. Tell them of the Exodus, but also tell them of the precious and very great promises given to our forefather Abraham. Tell them the whole story. Go back to the beginning. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Man fell. God is gracious. He's promised to provide a redeemer. Tell them all of that, Israel. That's what Exodus 13 is saying to the people of Israel. And I am saying that our festival functions in the same way as we assemble together on the Lord's Day Sabbath, as we, as we sing and as we pray and as we hear the Word of God, as we partake of the Supper, it is giving us this opportunity to tell the next generation the significance, you see. We must preach the Gospel to them, brothers and sisters. 
We must tell them of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and its significance for us. And children, children, I want to speak to you very directly for a moment. I want to encourage you, children, to be curious about the faith and to ask questions of your parent or parents. I wonder if you are listening to me right now. I hope that you are. I hope that you're hearing my words. Be curious. Don't just show up to church every Sunday and then go home and show up and go home and never say anything. But, but come to your parents. The Lord's Day is a wonderful day for this, by the way. Come to your parents and say, what do these things mean? Why do we do this? Why do we set this day apart as holy? Why do we spend so much time coming to church and hearing uh, the Word of God? Why do we partake of the Lord's Supper as a congregation? What is all of this about? You need to be curious about the faith and to ask questions. If you are listening to my words right now, children, you are blessed. You are blessed. You are being raised in the faith. But listen carefully. This does not mean that you have faith. This does not mean that you have faith. You're being raised in the faith. You're being raised in the church and in close proximity to all of these things. But you yourself do not necessarily have faith. This is something you must do. You must turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ. You're not born into that. Your parents cannot do that for you. You must do it. And so I'm urging you to be inquisitive, to ask questions. You're truly blessed because you're in this privileged position. If you have a parent or parents, a grandmother, relative, or some other person who has faith in Christ and who is raising you in the faith, I'm saying ask them questions. Talk about what you see and what you hear. Be curious. I wonder if you noticed what our text said about that in When in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to them, etc. In other words, we have an example here of a son, a child, coming to their parents and saying, tell me more, I want to know more. And so I am urging you to be curious, want to learn. This is a day for rest and worship. It's a wonderful day for talking about the things of the Lord. And so children, I'm urging you to take the opportunity to learn from your parents, and to believe upon Christ who died for the sins of His people. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are sinners, but you are gracious, merciful, and kind. And we thank you for this. That you have determined to provide Salvation for us is truly marvelous. And as we consider the way that you accomplished it, we we stand in awe. We thank you for Christ, but we also thank you for everything that led up to him and for the way that he was proclaimed and for the way that he was pictured for generations to come. This helps us to see him clearly. This helps us to understand the work that he has accomplished. This helps us to see that he did not come on his own initiative, and make this up, but came in fulfillment to the promises previously given. We thank you for Christ, that he shed his blood for us, that he suffered for us, and that he rose again in victory. Help us to know for certain that if we die in our sins, we deserve death, we will be judged by you. Help us to know for certain that if we die in Christ with faith in him, we will be shielded. We will be shielded from your wrath, and we will enter into the new heavens and new earth, which is the promised land. May we all be found in Christ. 
I pray this in his name. Amen.